Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Good to be back in the Word of God with you once again. And a special welcome to all our new listeners on iHeartRadio and on OnePlace.com. We're glad to have you on board. Moving full steam ahead with our study in Daniel. In our last study, we got our feet wet, and today we're jumping in. Bibles open to Daniel 1. We pick up our text with verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter, and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies, and the wine that they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. In all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Mary Milan was a very normal young woman. She had the same goals in life that most people have. Mary was born in 1869, and she lived until 1938. Now keep in mind that back in that day, women did not have a lot of options when it came to what they could do for work. But her basic motive was that she just wanted a better life, and she was willing to work hard to get it. Now, Mary had been born in the aftermath of what was known at that time as the Irish potato famine. She came to America, and that meant starting at the bottom. She lived in the slums of New York. She started out doing laundry, which was in that day tough, hot, physical work. She worked hard. She cared about her work. At the turn of the century, she became a cook, the head servant for a wealthy family. Now, what she did not know is that within her body, she carried a disease. Now, she was just a carrier, and her body was actually able to fight it off just enough that she would not get sick from it, but she was still contagious. Remember, Mary had worked her way up to being a cook, and this meant as she prepared food, little did she know that she was infecting others. And by the time the health authorities caught up with her in 1907, she'd already infected 22 people, and one person had already died. For the health of the public, she was forced into isolation for almost three years. 
Finally, as an act of kindness, they released her on the condition that she would check in once in a while with the authorities and that she would become something other than a cook. Well, at first she listened, but she wasn't really happy about it. And she played the game with the authorities. She went along with what they said, but inwardly, in her heart, she denied that anything was wrong with her. She wanted her old life back. Her life of being a cook, being the head servant in a home. She had lost a little bit of social status that she had gained. She wanted it back. So she changed her name to Mary Brown and began to work at a hospital. But in 1914, when another 15 people became sick and two people died, the gig was up. This time, the authorities had little choice. She was simply too dangerous. She was arrested and confined for the rest of her life on North Brother Island, which is in the middle of the Hudson River. Mary Milan was isolated and became a nobody, and for killing three and causing 37 people to become sick, her name forever became enshrined in history as Typhoid Mary. Here was a woman who could have been free, but she would not respect the authorities. She would not believe that there was something physically wrong with her. And this denial, this unwillingness to listen to the God-ordained authorities, brought about death and sickness for many people. For Mary, her refusal to listen costs her the right to be free. In more recent times, you might remember the name Kent Hoven, Dr. Dino, he was known as. Not too many years back, he was a creation scientist who did not believe that we need to pay taxes. Kent Hoven is still in prison simply because he did not respect the laws of the land and the authorities over us. Now, in our text, certainly we are confronted with a man who wanted to obey his God, but his refusal to listen to the authorities could have cost him everything. In our last study, we saw in verse 5 that Daniel and the young Jewish men that were taken captive were given food and drink from the king's table. This meant that they were eating the same food, the same drink that the king would have. Notice the wording of verse 8, how Daniel handled this situation. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Notice this part. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. It's interesting how verse 8 starts out with the phrase that Daniel purposed in his heart. It literally means that Daniel placed upon his heart. And the idea here is that Daniel made a decision not to defile himself. And after making that decision, he placed it upon his heart. He determined that he would carry it through. Here was a man who made the conscious decision that he would not defile himself before God. Oh, how I wish we had more people like this today. Listen, this text is not just about food. Too many Christians make that mistake and somehow think that this text teaches that if we eat like rabbits, that this will glorify Christ. Nothing wrong with eating healthy, but recognize the principle, the priority is on walking by faith, by learning to live a life that trusts Christ and his word. Learning to live in a way that glorifies Christ in all that you do, instead of caving in to the depravity of man. Now this text seems to indicate that Daniel led in this decision not to defile himself, and his three friends joined him in this decision. There were a few problems with the food for a young Jewish man like Daniel. First, if you study passages such as Leviticus 11, you see right away that the Jews were not to eat the meat of certain animals. Some animals were okay, but others were not. And once an animal is made into a meal, sometimes it can be hard to tell what kind of meat you're eating. Secondly, keep in mind that according to passages like Leviticus 7, 
we know that the Jewish people were not supposed to eat the fat and the blood of the animals. So one aspect here to consider is that Daniel didn't want to have to guess if he was obeying God or not. He wanted to be clear on his obedience to God. And I think this should be a great lesson for the church today because a lot of the mindset that exists with Christians today is to look for the ways that we can get away with living the way we want to live instead of looking to walk the path that brings the most glory and honor to God. Now, as for wine, we need to remember that wine was the drink of their day. Drinking alcohol is not condemned in the word of God, but getting drunk is. I think in this case, it could be that Daniel probably knew that many in the king's court would drink to get drunk, and Daniel wanted to separate himself from those that did not live for God. But a big part of this that we should not forget is that the kings of these nations always insisted that all of the food prepared was dedicated to the false gods of their lands. And this included the wine. The wine itself would have been dedicated to the false gods of Babylon in their pagan worship. In other words, this meant that it was considered back then that if you ate the food, the meat of an animal that was sacrificed to a god, then you'd be blessed by that god. Now, Nebuchadnezzar absolutely would have done this. He would have wanted the gods of his land on the side of his government so that his kingdom would be blessed. So the bottom line is, if you ate this food or drank this wine, it was considered that you'd be blessed by the false gods of their land. And it was also a way of showing that you worshipped and paid respect to these gods. Now think about this from a Jewish perspective. This was a direct violation of Exodus chapter 34, verse 15, where the Jewish people, not the church, important distinction, where the Jewish people were told not to eat a food that had been sacrificed to false gods. What I want you to recognize is that this text was not written to tell us as church-age believers how to eat. The original intent of the text is about faith. This is about young men choosing to live by faith, that they would obey God, that they would trust his word, even though they'd been hauled off to Babylon, even though their names had been changed to try to force them to honor false gods. And even though they were surrounded by immorality, they were surrounded by idol worship, these young men chose by faith to obey God rather than men. If getting ahead, if moving up in position in the Babylonian government was the goal, if getting a promotion was the motive, Daniel should have kept his mouth shut and eaten the food. There is a mighty lesson here. Let this be a point of application for all of us, but especially our younger people, because you're going to face this same type of decision over and over again in your lives. And will you cave in? Will you follow the path that leads to worldly success, or will you take the path that brings glory to our God? Daniel was pretty smooth with how he handled this, and if you find yourself in a situation where an authority figure is wanting you to compromise your faith, study this passage and look for the principles involved in how Daniel solved this problem. Daniel didn't get upset. Daniel didn't start calling for a protest. Daniel didn't rationalize or try to give himself some excuse to get around God's commands. He could have said, normally God wants us to obey, but these are not normal circumstances. God doesn't expect us to obey in a situation like this, does he? You see, that is what makes the story of Daniel so inspiring. These were unusual circumstances, but Daniel and these men still obeyed. Daniel could have rationalized that if he would have eaten the food, it would have helped him to make friends with the king, which meant that he could have been in a position to help his people. Daniel could have said, if we disobey, we may die, and this eunuch in charge of them may die. We're pro-life, right? 
God doesn't want us to die, so we'd better eat the food. None of these things were the issue. The bottom line, like it so often is, would they obey God and his word? Would they live by faith, live with trust in God? Daniel knew that if he just flat out disobeyed the king, it could bring about his own death. Think about his request. The presupposition that exists behind the request is that Daniel had faith, not in this man, not in the chief of the eunuchs to be nice to him, not in the mercy of Nebuchadnezzar not to kill him, but Daniel had faith, faith that God was sovereign, faith that God would not want Daniel to disobey his commands in the word of God, that no matter how it turned out, even if it meant their death, God did not want them to disobey his word. The picture given of Daniel in verse 8 is humility. He didn't get all haughty. He didn't get all huffy. Christians today do. Christians today are some of the most arrogant people there are, and it hinders the work of Christ. Daniel humbly requested to the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I also think in verse 8, the text is suggesting to us that Daniel was in effect telling the chief of the eunuchs that his faith, it was in the true God of Israel, not the false gods of Babylon. Notice verse 9, God was with him. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Notice the progression in these verses. In verse 8, Daniel determines not to defile himself. Then in verse 9, God brought Daniel into favor with the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel obeyed God first, then God brought him into favor. Many Christians today have this backwards because they want God's favor in their life, but they have no desire to obey God. Put Christ first. Make your obedience to the word of God your first priority, especially in the tough times, and let the results rest in his sovereign hands. Daniel lived a faithful testimony before God and men, but it was Yahweh himself who moved this man's heart. Pick up your text with verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, You could see his entire concern at the end of verse 10. Then you would endanger my head before the king. He was worried about himself. Nebuchadnezzar had commanded what these young men were to eat, so for Ashpenaz to disobey, it meant death. He was worried that these four young men would not look as good as the other young men that were there. And what I like about what Daniel does next is that he suggests a solution. He doesn't just mention a problem, but he gives a possible solution. Learn this principle. There's a shift between verses 10 and 11. In verse 11, Daniel is now dealing with the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over them. This leads some to believe that Daniel was turned down by Ashpenaz, and Daniel is said to be trying again with the steward in charge. It might be. It's possible. But verse 9 just told us that God brought Daniel into favor with the chief of the eunuchs, so I wouldn't read too much into this. Daniel asked for a trial period, a period of 10 days eating only water and vegetables. And so the principle that we should take away from this is to suggest a trial period, suggest a period of time for your proposed solution. Ten days isn't all that long. 
No one will die from eating vegetables and drinking water in 10 days' time. You might not like it much, but you won't die from it. Now, we should recognize that the Hebrew word for vegetables, it literally means sown things. It means things that have been planted in the ground. So this probably included grains and wheat. The diet that they were on consisted of vegetables, wheat, grain, and water. In verse 13, Daniel tells the steward to examine them after the ten days, then examine the appearance of the other young men that were eating of the king's table, the ones that were eating the meat and drinking the wine. Daniel tells the steward in verse 12, test the theory. You don't have to commit to this forever. Just test it for ten days, and then you do as you see fit. Now Daniel put this entire thing in the hands of God. I get the impression that Daniel probably had a good relationship with the steward. I get the impression that Daniel must have had some trust that the steward would be objective. But the real issue at this point was that this was a step of faith for Daniel and his friends. They were trusting God to honor their obedience to him. Pick it up again with verse 14. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Again, the real story here is not just about their diet. The real story is that these men obeyed God and God honored their obedience to him. Now, it may seem like a small thing to us, but they stepped out on faith and God would use this faith for bigger things later on which is exactly how God works. If we're faithful in the little things, then he trusts us with the bigger things. Be faithful to God in the little things. Be faithful to God when no one else is around. After this test, verse 15 teaches us that they look good. They look better than the men eating at the king's table. Now, verse 17 is an important verse. Take a look with me. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. There's a shift in the text with verses 8 through 16. We've really been talking about the first major test of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But now in verse 17, we start to learn how the men got into the king's service, which sets us up for our next study. Notice the wording in verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave. God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Keep in mind that they are being trained for this period of three years by the best educators in the world. Do not walk away with the idea that God just supernaturally gave these men knowledge and skill, that these men just sat back and God did it all for them. Before they even went to Babylon, these young men were educated. And verse 4 gives us the understanding that these men had been studying for years before they were taken into captivity. And now they'd been studying for three more years in Babylon. Babylon was considered the center of knowledge in that day. Science was more advanced in Babylon in that time period than in any other place. Literature was extensive. So these four young men studied hard. They applied themselves. They obeyed God. And the result of all this is that God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. God orchestrated it, but he used the hard work of these young men. God gave them wisdom so that they could know the difference between true knowledge and the wisdom of the world. James 1.5 comes to mind. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Moses was trained by the best minds of the Egyptians. Paul was trained by the Jews, and Daniel was taught by the Babylonians. 
Notice at the end of verse 17, it says that Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. All four young men were given knowledge and skill and literature and wisdom, but only Daniel received the understanding of visions and dreams. The young men worked hard to obtain their education, but the gift God gave Daniel to understand visions and dreams, this was entirely something that came from God. Daniel had no part in this. It was all God. This was the ability to discern between the true and the false. And when it came to dreams and visions, when the dreams were true, when the visions were true, Daniel had the ability to interpret them. This was a supernatural gift that came from God. But this was critical because they were now living in a land where visions and dreams were an important part of life. In that culture, they really believed that through study, one could learn to understand the will of their gods by studying their dreams. Daniel and these men would have been forced to learn the methods of divination that was practiced in the Babylonian kingdom. Serious study would have been devoted in their training, not just for Daniel and his friends, but for all the men taken from the nations. They would have been forced to study dream interpretation and divination. But Daniel and company were in a unique situation. Because of their strong faith, they knew that the one true God is the only source of divine revelation. And God doesn't have to tell anyone what his plan is because he is God. So this is why this is listed in verse 17, that God, the God of the Bible, he gave Daniel the ability to understand dreams and visions. And the thought here is that Daniel was given the ability to understand the dreams and visions that actually had meaning. Most of the dreams in Babylon that the people were having were because they had too many blankets on when they went to bed at night or they ate a bad burrito before bed. Most dreams had no meaning at all. Remember, these people thought that every dream had meaning. They went so far that they tried to put people to sleep just so they would dream because the dreams were supposed to reveal the will of their gods. They even had certain priests that were considered experts in dream interpretation. Satan had his counterfeits, but Daniel was the real deal. He had a gift from God, and on the occasions that a dream actually did have meaning, he could interpret it. He could give the meaning of both visions and dreams. Remember, the canon of the Word of God was not completed, and in the Old Testament, God spoke to His people through visions and dreams that were given to His prophets. Pick up your text with verse 18. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Verse 18 starts out by saying, at the end of the days. This was the end of the three-year training period. This was the big day for them. This was graduation day. At this point, they were probably coming up on 20 years old. But it wasn't just a big day for them. It was a big day for Ashpenaz as well. He was put in charge of them. If the king was disappointed, it would not be a good thing for him. On that day, all the men that had been trained were brought in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king would decide who would fill his positions in the royal court. Now, verse 19 tells us that the king interviewed them. There should be a footnote somewhere in your Bible that tells you the phrase here means that he talked with them. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to find out how well trained they were. And we read in the latter half of verse 19, And among them all, none was found like Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. They studied hard. They remained faithful to God, and they became the best of the best. Listen to Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see a man who excels in his work? 
He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. These young men studied hard and were rewarded by being allowed to serve before the king. This doesn't mean that other men weren't chosen for other positions. The Bible's just telling us here about these four. Now, verse 20 is interesting. Nebuchadnezzar compared these four men with his magicians and astrologers. The worldly magicians and astrologers, they could not compare to four young men gifted by God with wisdom and knowledge. The magicians and astrologers were typically brought in to give advice to the king. They were considered to be the wise men of their day. But Daniel and company came out way ahead in their counsel to the king because they had the wisdom of the Lord. The phrase here, ten times better, this is simply an expression that was used that meant many times better. Verse 21 finishes out the chapter. Daniel records, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Keep in mind that we said Daniel was taken captive in 605 B.C. Babylon fell to Cyrus from the Medo persian Empire in October of 539 B.C. So Daniel records that he lived those 66 years of Babylonian captivity. He would have been about 81 years old at that time. We know from Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, that Daniel actually lived a couple of years past Cyrus, taking over Babylon. But there are two reasons why he probably recorded verse 21 as he did. One is because his point in this chapter is that he outlasted the entire Babylonian empire. He was taken into captivity, served different kings in the Babylonian empire, and was still serving when Babylon fell. Secondly, most likely Daniel wrote this portion of the text in the first year of Cyrus's reign. At the time of writing this, he simply didn't know how many years he had ahead of him. But what we have in Daniel is the record of a man who always continued to be, decade after decade, faithful to the Lord. This is the introduction of Daniel, which sets us up to understand the amazing prophecies revealed in the rest of the pages of Daniel. Veronica Hullock told of her service to this country during World War II the time Veronica was just 20 years old when she joined the Navy Waves, which stood for Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. Veronica and about 1,500 other bright young women worked for hours at the monotonous job of wiring red, yellow, green, and blue wires to small wheels. Later, they discovered that they had helped build a set of very early computers for the Navy, referred to as the bomb, even though the word computer had not been introduced into our vocabulary yet. Later on, this group was transferred to Washington, D.C. They were all sworn to secrecy, with the consequence of being shot if they leaked any information about their project. It took about 500 women, each shift, to run the 120 computers, and we'll use that word computer pretty loosely. But it took about 500 women to run these machines every shift. When they got a printout, they were not allowed to read it. They ripped off the printout, knocked on the door at the end of the room, and gave it to a hand that came out, only long enough to grab the paper. And when the war was over, each young lady was taken into an office and had to swear on the Bible that they would never talk about their work. They were even given a letter instructing future employers not to ask about their activities during the war. It took 50 years for these women to even learn about what they had done to help end the war. In 1994, 80 of these women gathered in Dayton, Ohio for a reunion, and it was then that a Navy historian told them for the first time what they had helped to do. They had been responsible for helping to sink between 750 to 800 German U-boats. These early machines that they had helped to build and run analyzed the U-boat codes of the Nazis. 
They had helped to shorten the war by at least one, maybe even two years, and they had saved countless lives. Veronica said that she was thrilled to at last be able to tell of her work during the war, and she felt bad that some of those ladies died never knowing the huge role that they had played in the war effort. Veronica writes, It was a different time in our history. We were patriotic, disciplined, caring, and just so thrilled to know we were doing something special to help end the war. We never sought recognition. I always thought of us as the unsung heroines of World War II. This is the type of mindset that we need to adopt within the Church of Jesus Christ. We need men and women looking to be the unsung heroes of the Christian faith. It is impossible for any one of us to know the impact we have had or could have had in the lives of others until we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. But I know this, the call from the word of God is to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk by faith. Walk with trust in the Lord. Faith means we trust God's word. Faith means we confidently live out his word. Reflect your identity, your position in Christ by living how God wants us to live. There will be times when we'll be forced to make some tough choices in life. And more often than not, people are watching. Never lose track of your identity. Never lose track of who you are in Jesus Christ. Daniel could have easily blended in with the people around him. Babylon was one of the most advanced cities of its day. It had all the temptations of the flesh. But decade after decade, living hundreds of miles from his homeland, Daniel never caved in. We have no record anywhere in the Word of God of Daniel ever compromising with the world, meaning this was a man that continued to be faithful in all things. Even before powerful pagan kings, he brought them face to face with a holy God. And I think the real reason is because Daniel made a choice. It goes back to verse 8. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Daniel made up his mind. He chose not to defile himself. He determined in his heart that he was not going to cave in. Daniel had no way of knowing what the result would be. Daniel could have chosen not to defile himself, and it could have meant his death. But either way, he was going to glorify God. Daniel was willing to say no to the pagan king so that he could please the eternal king. Learn to trust God. Walk with confidence and trust in God. Learn to renew your mind with the word of God, knowing that while absent from the Lord, we walk by faith and not by sight. We close with the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, where he testified, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, listen to this part, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Thanks for listening. And before I sign off, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our free newsletter. You can find out all about it at returntotheword.com. We'll see you next time. And until then, I pray that you will continue to walk by faith, always living for our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 